Everyone can turn to Mark chapter 14. We're gonna we're gonna go back. We're gonna go back to high school English class uh, a little bit today. Um, I know because this is a book that my son has finished reading for his his high school English class, um, and it's a classic. To kill a mockingbird. So, so think back to your, your school days and when you read that classic by Harper Lee or um, maybe you were in school before Harper Lee's classic came out, in which case, glad you're here, um, glad you're still with us. Um, but there's a character in, the, in that book named Mrs. DuBose, and um, as we recently watched the movie, the, the Gregory Peck, it's Gregory Peck, I'm just going to go with that. Okay, got an option. But there's a mean old lady on the street uh, named Mrs. DuBose and Scout and Jim, who are the brother and sister main characters of the story, uh, have to they have to go past her house uh, almost every day. And every time the children of Atticus Finch would would go in front of Mrs. DuBose's house. Uh, she would find some nasty thing to say or shout at them or some critical thing to, to say about them or their dad. And, and uh, one day, uh, Jim, the, the brother who was about 12 years old, got so angry with Mrs. DuBose at, at the nasty things that she was saying to them that he, he went into her, her prized camellias and just started whacking them with a stick and cut off all the blooms and blossoms and tore up her camellias and of course got into big trouble and as punishment uh, Atticus let Mrs. DuBose uh, pick how Jim would spend his punishment time uh, which ended up being Jim reading to Mrs. DuBose every single day and as he did this relationship started to form it was it was um, stressful and strenuous and difficult and she was nasty and he was Obstinate and but as he did, he got to know Mrs. DuBose and she got to know him. A real relationship started to form while at the same time her own health, uh, she was quite old, was fading. And later on, when Mrs. DuBose dies, she gives Jim a gift. Uh, and it's the single bloom of a camellia in uh, a candy box. And, and Atticus tells Jim that the reason she wanted him to read to her was that she needed the distraction because she was battling an opium addiction, a morphine addiction that came from uh, her medication that she's never been able to shake. And she was determined to shake this addiction before she died. And Atticus has this wonderful quote that that is pretty well known from the book. He says, I wanted you to see what real courage is. Instead of getting the idea that courage is a man with a gun in his hand, it's when you know you're lit before you begin, but you begin anyway and see it through no matter what. I like that. I wanted to talk about that is the kind of the intro to the sermon because Mrs. DuBose is showing strength in the middle of very human weakness and very human struggle. She showed strength in the middle of 
of her human weakness. And we're coming to this text this morning, which is the account of the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus, uh, in this moment of great agony, uh, shows us what it's like to have dependent strength in the middle of his own despair, in the middle of his own loneliness, in the middle of his own fear. In other words, Jesus in his humanity looked into the cup of God's wrath that he was being called to drink and, and despaired to the point of death. But his desire and his prayer were to do the will of God. So I'm going to read the passage this morning, and it's found in your bulletin. Uh, if you want to follow up there, if you have your Bible, uh, look there. Uh, but I want us to look at it in two ways. I'm going to have two points this morning. First of all, weakness revealed in strength. And second of all, strength revealed in weakness. So weakness revealed in strength and strength revealed in weakness. Starting in verse 26 of Mark chapter 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will. But what he will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name. Let's look at, first of all, weakness revealed in strength. Uh, the disciples think they are strong when they are weak. I mean, that, that much seems somewhat obvious to us. 
But it comes from this misidentification, I think, of who they really see themselves as. They're, they're sort of misidentifying themselves and who they really are. Um, and, and in so doing, they are, they are placing their dependence in the wrong area. They are placing their dependence in their own strength rather than in Jesus. Right? They, they, seem, they see themselves as being strong. And confident and capable and and mature. And if we were there with them, we would agree with them. Uh, and in fact, you know, we would dare say, I dare say we, we do see ourselves in the same way oftentimes. And so here they are in this next sort of step along the journey to the cross. And they have they have finished their Passover meal and, and during the Meal, Jesus seems to be seems to be somewhat off. It was a, somewhat of a strange Passover meal. He broke from the script and, and added this other stuff. And what was all that talk about being betrayed? And one of them was going to betray him. That is obviously not going to happen. That's impossible. Uh, and, and what was all that about eating his body and drinking his blood? Um, that was strange. But. But the meal concluded and they sang the closing song and they went out to the garden to pray. And there they are in the middle of the olive trees. And in verse 27, Jesus says this to them. You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And I think this causes more consternation within them, more confusion, more questions, because they don't think they're sheep. They don't know that they're sheep. They, they think they're tigers. Uh, I remember kind of, you know, back closer to when the war on terror was going on and like 9-11 happened, which, you know, obviously we just said it uh, observed the 20th anniversary of that horrific date, but one of one of the enemies of the United States characterized the U.S. as being a paper tiger, uh, and and a paper tiger is just is this wonderful visual element uh, or image of, of one who outwardly seems powerful or strong, but inwardly is weak. Right? Uh, the the disciples here. Uh, don't think they're paper tigers by any stretch of the imagination. If anything, they would think that they're actual tigers. Uh, but really, they're not even paper tigers. I think they would be paper sheep if they're, they're anything. But Peter here tries to, to roar like a tiger in his response to what Jesus said. But it kind of comes out in a pathetic, you know, bleat. Um, verse 29 Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will not. And true to form, the rest of the disciples try their best to keep up with Peter. And in verse 31, he says, Peter says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then they all said the same thing. Like the amount of spiritual bravado, spiritual, you know, kind of self-denial almost. A deception here, self-deception here is, is quite in line with what we've seen from the disciples so far. If you remember in Mark chapter 10, way a long time ago, uh, and two of the disciples go come up to Jesus and said, you know, give us anything we want and let us sit at your right hand when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus said to them in 10, 38, 39, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. He didn't even know what he was talking about. They had no conception of this cup and this baptism that he was referring to. And now the hour for that cup to be drunk and the baptism to be applied is upon Jesus. And, and he is again sort of trying to warn them, trying to teach them, trying to give them this gracious lesson. But the problem is they think following Jesus is all about their own will. Think about some, the difference that sometimes you can find between a person who is a young Christian, young in their faith, rather, and a person that has supposedly been walking with Jesus for years. A young Christian who still remembers their dependence and need is stronger often than that person who has supposedly been walking with Jesus for years and has convinced themselves that they are strong. The Christian that says in his heart, I know I can't do it. I know I can't do it alone. But by God's grace, I'm going to do my best. It's in discovering their weakness, I think in large part due to this episode in their lives that we're looking at this morning. It's in discovering their weakness that the disciples will become strong. The story kind of has more details in it than most of the stories in Mark's, but it still moves rather swiftly. But I think as Mark listened to Peter kind of recounting this episode in the life of the disciples and, and in his own life, Mark and Peter want the Christians who are reading the Gospel of Mark, who, who read this, to, to have that steel injected into their spines by recounting the lessons of the garden as a way to remind their readers where our strength comes from. It's not, a, it's not a strength that comes from my own will to follow or to obey. But Jesus here proceeds deeper into the garden and he takes Peter and James and John with him. And, and yeah, I, he, he took them with him because he needed and wanted the company. Absolutely. But... They also needed to have their heart's weakness uncovered. They needed to have their own dependence exposed. But they had something there to learn. 33 and 34. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. I think Jesus wanted them to observe his struggle. I think Jesus wanted them to observe him and his, his distress and, and moment of extreme weakness so that they could learn from him. Luke goes even further in, in Luke 22, verse 40. He said, and he came to the place and he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. As it was, they did. <laughs> they did fall into temptation, didn't they? And three times he returned to find them sleeping and 
And he said, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away to pray, and he sang the same words, and he came again and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? If they had known the depth of their own need in that moment, they wouldn't have dared to sleep. If they had known their own weakness, they would not have dared to fall asleep. If they had known the depth of the distress and what awaited their friend and master, Jesus, if only they had observed and Jesus as he prayed just a few yards away the true scope of the need of the times that lay ahead, they would have indeed prayed. And so would we if we better understood our desperate need, our need for grace. Let me ask you these questions. What has God used in this last year to drive you to dependent prayer? What circumstances has caused you to cry out in lament? What complaints can you bring to God in your prayer? What expressions of helplessness can you confess? Sometimes God will use our prayers of helpless dependence not to deliver us from our Gethsemane times, but sometimes He will use them to deliver us through our Gethsemane times. Only when we have our dependence uncovered will we want to run to the true source of strength in prayer. It's often painful when our weakness is revealed. So there's, there's weakness revealed in strength. Let's look at strength revealed in weakness. Uh, there was a, a church council that met in 451 AD called the Council of Chalcedon. Um, I don't know. We're getting into church councils now. Um, but it meant to clear up uh, a heresy, as these things tend to be to do, um, that claimed that Christ had but one nature. And the, the heresy did, denied, basically, the two distinct natures of Christ, who was both God and man. Chalcedon claimed that these two natures could never be separated from Christ, that, that they are distinct and at times distinguishable. And this is one instance in which we see Jesus in His humanity. Uh, and the response that He has to what is coming is, is a very human response, because Jesus was human and is human. Jesus knew what was coming. Uh, he knew not only the, the horrors of the cross, but he also knew what was really in the cup he was being called to drink. And in verse 34, he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And that, that word, very sorrowful. I mean, there's lots of different ways it's translated in different uh, versions of your Bibles. The New Living Translation says, Crushed with grief to the point of death. The NIV says, Overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. But the word it literally has almost an element of surprise to it. It's almost like a jump scare in a movie, you know, that, that sort of thing. There, it's nothing frivolous, obviously, but I don't know if you've ever experienced sorrow like this. I don't know if truly any other human being 
course of history has experienced sorrow equal to what Jesus is experiencing now, but, but surely some have come close to it. Maybe some of you have come close to it. I can thankfully say I have not. Uh, and I hope you have not. And if you have, I hope you never have to again. But it's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around this kind of sorrow, this, this level of despair and fear, but this is how Jesus is reacting in this moment in his humanity. This is how he's responding to what is about to happen to him. It says, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not my what I will, but what you will. Hebrews 5, 7 kind of gives us a, a little bit of a different take on the same moment. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Well, what was it that was in the cup? What did, he, what did he see in the cup as he peered into it as he was about to drink it? What did he pray for God to really spare him from? Well, one of the things that was in the cup was sin. The cup was full of sin. It was full of all of the sins of all of God's broken people. All of the jealousy and envy and greed and pride and hatred and arrogance and racism and lust and all forms of sexual immorality. It was full of gossip and slander and gluttony and covetousness. And the list is literally infinite, I feel like. It was full of all of the foulness and corruption that grows in men's hearts. In other words, it was full of all of the things that Jesus was completely innocent of. The only human being to never in any way be stained with such things was now being asked to drink this cup which is full of it. He would have to drain the cup containing all of the guilt and all of the shame of every immorality ever committed by every one of God's elect. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is, and has been for long, one of my favorite passages of Scripture because I think it's the Gospel is one, one verse. But thinking about that this week puts 2 Corinthians 5.21 in a whole new light for me. It says, For our sake we made Him to be sin who do no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of but it's not all the cup was full of. Because not only was it full of all the guilt and all the shame of all of the sins of all of God's people, but the cup was full of wrath. It was also full of sin's consequences. The ultimate curse of death, the holy, righteous, and fierce anger of God that our sin deserves. Jesus became the curse that we should have become because of our sinfulness. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse 
of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. No wonder that Luke tells us that Jesus sweat these great drops of blood. On the one hand, it's, it's no wonder that Jesus prayed that he would not have to drink this cup. And on the other hand, we have to ask this question, how could Jesus pray something that, that he, he knew wasn't God's will? And he prayed this three times. But how did he, how did he end his prayer? Yet not what I will, but what you will. It's a very short sentence. But does the magnitude of the grace that is contained within those words strike you? Yet not what I will, but what you will, Father. He said, I don't want to do this. But I'm going to do it. The love of my people. In John, in John's gospel, he has several statements, some, something like this. In John 4, my food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 6, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 10, no one takes it from me, talking about his life. But I lay it down of my own. And I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. One of the commentators I read said this, In the greatest display of obedience that will ever be known, Jesus took the full chalice of man's sin and God's wrath, looked shuddering deep into its depth, and in a steel act of His will, drank it all. Don't let that sink in. It was His will and His obedience that made that depth of grace available to you and me. How would you respond to that truth? Whether you're a Christian already or are still searching, all of this Jesus did for you. And you can either walk away and ignore it as one more sermon about sin and Jesus dying on the cross, and, or you can let it penetrate your heart and let it change you. Even if you've been a Christian for many years, the call to respond is the same. We're about to come to the table. As we come to the table, let the bread and let the wine preach this to you. Let it drive home what Jesus really accomplished in his grief. The table is an opportunity to respond with a thankful heart to this grace. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to close with this, these words that we just sang in that, that haunting way. Thus might I hide my blushing face when His dear cross appears. 
Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes in tears. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give my life away. Tis all that I can do. Heavenly Father, I pray that however we respond to the truth of what we just heard from your word, the truth of Jesus' prayer and action and, and desire to save his people, his obedience to you, I pray, Lord, that our response to it would gush forth from hearts that have been made alive again by the power of your spirit in your people. In thankfulness. And that those hearts of gratitude and thankfulness would translate into lives of service for you and for your people and for those around us, Lord. Help us to give ourselves away completely, holding nothing back from you. No compartment of our lives left unopened by your transformative grace. Lord, I pray that you would do this not so that Grace Community Church might grow and be thought of as a great church and, and be a desirable place for people to come. I pray that you would do this so that the people in our body might go out and impact the world with the gospel because we have been impacted because we have found our identity in it. Lord, as we come to this table, preach to us through these common elements by your Spirit's working and power. We pray in Jesus' name.